Transition. All right, so here's what we're going to do. This, uh, this spring term, we're going to do a series uh, through a book. You do not have to read this book, but I would recommend that you buy it. It's a great book. It's called 10 Questions Every Teen Should Ask and Answer About Christianity. So every so often, I like to handle hot topics. Um, hard theological questions about why does God send uh, people to hell? Uh, what does that mean? To why does God allow suffering and pain? To, to social issues and hot topics about things like topics like abortion and homosexuality and uh, gender uh, dysphoria and things like that. So we're actually be talking about all these hot topics this year and trying to do our best job to look at God's Word, to look at God, how He designed things, and to arrive at what does it mean and how do you answer these, how does the Bible answer some of these questions, look at some of these topics, okay? So, um, uh, I, I love this. It's written by Rebecca McLaughlin. Uh, she's written a bunch of books on this, uh, and kind of this topic of questions and answering hard questions. And she says this in her, in her book, in the introduction, Each of us must think carefully for ourselves about what we believe. And that, that is what I, I hope really the goal is of this series, is that together as a group, we would, we would go through God's Word to answer some of these hard topics and look at some of these things so that you would have a more confidence to know in what you believe concerning uh, God and God's Word, okay? Um, and uh, yeah, just when I think about my own life, a, a lot of you know my story. Uh, I didn't grow up in church. Um, I just grew up kind of just secular, if you know what that word means, just non-Christian. Uh, I kind of had this kind of atheistic worldview of like, I'm just kind of here by chance and trying to trying to make, make the world a better place while I'm here and I'll die and, and, and hand it off to somebody else. And when I went to college, I had a, a series of unfortunate events happen. Uh, and I w- was left kind of asking the question of like, is this all there is really? Like, is this going to be the rest of my life? The things that I pour into, I'm just going to keep pouring into them and they're just going to fail me or I'm going to leave them behind. And I, and I began to get filled with this, this deep anxiety about like, there's got to be more. And if there isn't, this is really, really sad. If this is all there is. And from that, I got kicked into a Bible study and I began to see, uh, study the book of John, look at the life of Jesus, study the book of Genesis and look at and, and learn really literally things that you probably are, are like, duh, like I didn't believe that God created the universe. I thought that we were just here by chance. So that was all new information to me, right? This idea of sin and this, this concept of how, how God created us to live in perfect relationship with Him, but we rebelled against Him. And that is the reason for all human suffering and pain. That all made sense to me. And through this, having a lot of these hard questions answered, I began to trust God and trust His Word and therefore trust Christ eventually. It took about a year and a half fully for me to really soak all of it, soak in. So just, just going through that process myself was really, really important because I got to a place where this wasn't just somebody telling me what to believe, right? For this point, maybe your parents or your youth pastor or, or teachers in your school. Uh, for me, it was the guy that was leading Bible study. I began to own it for myself. So that's, 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 the, that's the meta goal, the main goal, is that you would have a stronger faith and know why you believe what you believe. And if you disagree with the things that the Scripture teaches, then you would know what it is you disagree with and that you would have somewhat of a, of a drive to learn and understand things on your own, okay? Um, a long introduction. But here's some of the questions we're going to look at, and I'm not going to read all, all through them, but uh, tonight we're going to look at how can I live my best life now? 
uh, which is a really, really good question, and it's a fair question. I think a good question that all of you should, should long for and desire to live a good life, uh, to know what it means to, to, to define for yourselves what is good and, and what do the scriptures teach about what is the good life, and to, and to genuinely want that is a good thing. Um, if I was to interview each of you personally, I'm sure each of you would want to ha- say that I would want to live a good life, that you don't want to live a bad life or a meaningless life or an insignificant life or an apathetic life, that you would want to live a good life. And embedded in this question are two main values or two main assumptions. One is that, um, that, that, that there's the value of happiness, that you, that, that, that you want to be happy, right? That you want to have a life that is, is joyful, that is probably absent of sadness, of pain, of suffering, of disorientation, of hardship. That, that's kind of the first thing. And the second thing is that you don't want to wait for it. That there's a sense of immediacy that you're longing for. That if something can be had, you want it to have it now. So that's what this question is looking at. Is what is the happy life? What is the good life? And what do you do with, with, with now? Is, is, is it bad to wait can, can you have what you want and long for now? Is it attainable or do you have to wait till later? How can I live my best life now? And you know, when Jesus came and ministered, uh, the book of John talks about, records a time where he said that, that um, uh, John 10, that I'll read right now, 7 through 11, where he, he says that he came, that they, you, me, his disciples, those who he ministered to in his earthly journey, he came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Have it abundantly, to have a good life and to have it now. Not to wait for it when they die and go to heaven, but there, there, there is a quality of life that Jesus talks about here in John 10 that is a good life, an abundant life that is present. So uh, that's what we're going to do. We're going to use John 10, 7 through 11 to answer this question. So let's dive in. Uh, verse 7, I'll pray, I'll read it and pray, and then, and then give some reflection. Uh, verse 7 says this, So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. It will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this time. Thank you for the series. Uh, and just thank you for um, the author of that book and, and these questions that she asked and answers. I do pray that you would help us to, uh, yeah, to trust in you and to trust in your word uh, more fully over these next 10 questions over the next 14 weeks or so. And that tonight you would help us to think well about the good life and what it means to have the good life now. Life in you. In your son's name we pray. Amen. Well, like I mentioned, I went to Disney. And I'm pretty sure that I'm going to talk about and use illustrations for my trip to Disney for the next 10 weeks. Because it is the happiest place on earth, right? If you've been to Disney. Uh, This is me and Owen, my son. Uh, We spent the last day at Magic Kingdom. Like I said, my wife was pregnant. And uh, we walked, I think, on her, on her uh, Apple thing, uh, I think it was like 10 miles that day. 
So a pregnant, uh, she, she, was, she was exhausted. And uh, if you've been to Magic Kingdom, how have you been to Magic Kingdom before? Uh, they have a really great, like at 10 o'clock or whatever, they have this really great fireworks show. And there's like this, they light up the castle and they do this whole thing. And there's good music and it's a lot of fun. And we told our kids, hey, you know, we're going to be at the park all day. We're going to go and do this, this fireworks show. And the, the castle is going to come alive. And Owen was talking about it all day, right? He was so excited to see this fireworks show. Well, there was like, I think on average, what they said is that on average, 50,000 people visit Magic Kingdom a day. So that's a lot of people. So imagine 50,000 people or so gathering in one little place to watch all these fireworks and things. Um, Addie was really, you know, like, I don't know if we should stay. Let's get going because we have to take the, tri- the, the bus back uh, to, our, to where we were staying. And it just felt like a big mess. She wasn't feeling well. She was tired. So we talked to our kids and said, hey, kids, you know, I know that we're, we told you that we're going to do this big fireworks show, but because, you know, just all the people and because it's late and you guys are tired, we're going to leave early. And Owen did not like that, if you can imagine, because he was expecting what? That we would go to this fireworks show and he'd see the castle light up and all these fireworks. He likes fireworks. So, right, he had this, this deep longing to see these fireworks. So when we sat down for him and said, hey, this thing that you've longed for all day, that you've been waiting for, that you, you, you were not going to do this thing, it, it really disoriented him. And we saw firsthand in a five-year-old the grief of an unmet longing, right? Just that he, he had this deep need, this deep longing, this thing to see, this joy to experience. And I, we, his parents, the ones whom he trusted uh, the most, said to him that this longing will not be fulfilled. And he flipped out and he yelled and he screamed and we had to figure this thing out. And I looked at Addie and I said, I don't think we can do this to him. I think we got to figure this thing out. So Addie went back to the hotel with her mom and I stayed there with, uh, well, just Owen. Annie was not prepared to, uh, to be there. She, did, she didn't want it. She wanted to go with Addie. She was like, what, why, why, where is she going and what is happening? I want to go with my mom. So she didn't stay for it. But Owen stayed and his longing was fulfilled. And he was very, very happy, if you could see in this picture, right? And what I'm trying to say to them in the story is to use the, the, the genuine response of a five-year-old who has deep longings to see fireworks become unmet and become disoriented from these unmet longings. And when you think about your own life, you all have deep longings, whether you're aware of them or not, things that, things that you really, really want to have that, are, that, are, that you are building towards, that you are working towards, that you are walking towards, that when these things, if they were to become unfulfilled, they would disorient you, right? The grief of an unmet longing is a real thing. And when we talk about the good life or the happy life or having your best life now, it's not about having the most money or having the most um, the biggest house. It's more about deep-seated longings that you wish to have that you want to become fulfilled. The longing for have lots of money is not a longing to have lots of money, but it's the longing to have significance, right? I have money, so therefore I am significant. It's the meeting the longing of I'm somebody because I have money, or the longing of I, I long to have a comfortable life, and I assume and associate that the comfortable life is to have a lot of money. The the tangibles represent an intangible longing. Do you see the connection here? And and when it comes to the human condition, not just for teenagers, looking forward to life 
after your teenage years. You have a lot of life left ahead of you, a lot of things to decide, a lot of jo jobs, families, where you'll live. You know, there's just a lot of things that, you're, you're, that are not defined for you yet, right? When you're in this phase, FOMO is a real thing. I don't know how many of you are stressed out about college and picking the right major. Like, it, it really is crazy to me, and I did this. I switched my major four times. It's crazy that you've got to decide when you're 18 to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars getting a degree to prepare you for a job for the rest of your life. Well, you don't even know what that job is yet, or if it's available, or if, you're, if it's like where it's going to be. Like, the whole system is really strange if you think about it. It makes more sense that you get a job first and then get the training. But whatever, right? But the, yeah, that's, that's like FOMO. Like, what if I make the wrong decision? What if I make the wrong choice? What if, what if I think that I should be a teacher, but I hate teaching when I get there? Or for me, what if I think that I like accounting, and then I have my first internship, my, uh, going into my senior year of college, and realize, oops, I've made a terrible choice. And then I switch it to a couple other things, in communications and became a pastor. all worked out in the end, right? But what I'm saying is FOMO is a real thing. I get it, right? So this question of how can I live my best life now is, is actually, is, is probably more than likely not driven by a desire to live a life uh, in accordance to God's definition of what it is good life, but it actually is probably out of a desire of, I don't want to miss out. I, I'm anxious to have a good life. I'm anxious to have it now. I'm anxious to know, uh, to, to, to have these things so that I can, I can have significance, so that I can, I can have comfort, so that I can have popularity, so that I can have whatever it is that you're longing for to have. How can I live my best life now? And if we go back through John 10, 7 through 11, and what Jesus talks about, and what he reveals to us about what the good life is, there are two things that he helps us see. That we know how to have the good life by discerning the bad life, right? By discerning the thieves. Jesus talks about thieves coming in, right? The thieves, the, the empty promises. There are, there, are, there are messages around you from your peers, from even maybe from your parents, maybe from those who you trust that are, that are telling you that this is what the good life is that actually isn't. And then secondly, by embracing the good shepherd or the good life found in Jesus. So in John 10, if you look back at this underlined part, so, so discerning the thieves, in order to know what is the good life, you've got to know what is the bad life, right? You've got to know what are the things that lead to death or destruction or, or disorientation. When Adam and Eve sinned against God, their sin led to death, right? In the same way, there's, there's actions that lead to not necessarily death, like that's going to kill us, but that lead to pain, suffering, things that we um, you know, uh, going against God, that, that, that guilt, shame, etc. So look at this. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door, I am the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers. But the sheep did not listen to them. Right? They had discernment, these sheep. And he, you guys know he's not talking about real sheep, right? He's talking about people, just making sure. Okay, good. Just making sure, you know. Uh, right? That these sheep knew who their shepherd's voice was. So when, when, when voices came to promise them something else, they could discern the voice. They could discern the thieves that were trying to rob them and misuse them. They could hear them. And then in verse 10, the thief only comes to steal and kill and destroy. And in, and in the ancient world, the time of Jesus, the thieves were very different than the thieves that we talk about now, right? Um, so what are the thieves of today? Right? What are the voices that are making promises to you of what the good life is 
that in the end don't lead to the good life. They're kind of like going like off the high jump. Like if you go to if you go to um, if you go to uh, the Perfect North and, and you go down the whatever that one is, and they have the jump, right? When you if, if you're like me, I can make it to the jump. Like I can I can ski well enough so I can fly in the air, but I don't know how to land that thing. So while I'm flying in the air, it's going to feel great. I'm like, oh, this is great. This is so much fun. But when I land, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to break a leg or break a neck or tumble and stumble and fall, right? Well, in the same way, that's what, that's what we're talking about here. Things that are culture and things that you, that you believe that will give you life for a moment. And they may do, and it may feel great, and you may feel like you're flying. But in the end, when you land, it hurts. It hurts. Two things. And this is more for me to define, not for you to know, right? What is, why, what is expressive individual and impulse gratification? Uh, that's just a marker for me to explain. So, so when people study youth culture, they say the prominent operating thing when it comes to your life, your primary longing is this thing called expressive individualism. And it's just, it's this phrase that I am because of what I desire. And what this means is that I have the right as an individual to express whatever desire that I have. So therefore, if I have this deep-seated desire to be an NBA superstar, it is my right to be able to be an NBA superstar, even if I'm not, even if I'm not good enough. Right? That's obviously a childish, crazy view, but you get what I'm saying, right? And this comes out in the way that we think about human sexuality. It comes the way that we think about gender. If I think that I am something, it is my right to therefore act on this desire. That's what expressive individualism is. And what this does, it makes the ultimate authority the self. And what happens when the ultimate authority is the self is that it may feel like you're flying for a little bit and you got things figured out, but what happens when you crash? What happens when you make the wrong decision? What happens when, you, when you're actually, you don't trust yourself and deep down you're afraid of the decisions that you make? It's not complete. In, in, in light of that, this leads to this thing called impulse gratification. Because my ultimate desire is for my own self-fulfillment, I, 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 I'm, I'm allowed to exercise this right as quickly as possible. So there is no, so let me step back and think about this for a little bit. Or let me, let, me, let me wait and see if this thing is actually good for me. If I want it, I deserve it now. That's what that means, right? That's one side of, of the promises that, that, that come to you culturally in the messages that you hear, from the movies that you see, that, that whatever it is, your deepest longing, it is your right as an individual to fulfill that longing. But what the scriptures teach in Jeremiah is that the heart is deceitful above all things. Is that there's something wrong with our internal workings where we, we don't know what's best for us. We don't know how to operate. We actually, we actually can't trust ourselves and our desires because they're thwarted by sin and therefore, what we want may not be what's always best for us and for others. And then secondly, it's, this, it's the other side of the spectrum that I call comparative moralism and the fear of man. What, what do I mean by that? It's not necessarily what I want, but it's what they want. That you're not enslaved to your own desire, but you're enslaved to the desires of somebody else. So, so your life becomes defined by meeting the expectations of others. Comparative moralism. I'm better than you, <laughs> right? It's the other side of the spectrum. It's you're your, 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 your known by your, your, your pride, and I'm, I'm, I'm the good one, the better one, the moral one, right? Whatever it may be. But really, what you're really about is that you, you're afraid of people. You're afraid of letting somebody down. You're afraid of letting your parents down. You're afraid of letting your teachers down. You're afraid of letting your friends down. So therefore, you, just become, you become a mirrored image of their expectation. 
And it may feel good for a little bit. You may succeed for a little bit. But in the end, you can't please everybody. And you will let people down. And when you do let people down, if this is, if this is what you believe is the good life, to be accepted by other people, when you let somebody down, guess what happens to you? You, you, you absolutely crumble. Absolutely crumble. And if I could summarize what I think the two spectrums are of, of what, 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 what people believe to be the good life, it's these two polarizing things. It's these two polarizing things. The life of, it, 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 really, it's a, it's a lonely life of self being the centered. And it's also, a, it's also an absolutely panicked life trying to, to run the rat race of meeting everybody's expectation. And, and, and the reality is that Jesus, the good shepherd, invites you to a different way of living. The good life found in him. Embracing the good shepherd. Verse 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Saved. And it's not just saved from your sins. Yes, it means that. But it also means saved to something. To, to, to a full life. To eternal life. That doesn't just mean life forever. But it means a quality of living in God that exists in the moment you believe that breaks you free of the, of the God of self and the God of others. Where you operate and the good life is defined in God and what He expects of you and what He longs of you to do and to be. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. What do sheep need more than anything? Pasture. Why? They're safe there and that's where they are fed and fueled what this is talking about, you know, when I go into my house, this is so simple, but I'm outside, I walk through the door, I am now what? Inside. I'm in a different position than I was in before. If I walk, if I take a step to the left, and I try to walk through the, through, the, through the wall, what happens? I hate the wall. If I try to go in the window and get in the window, but it's locked, I can't get in, right? You get the picture. Jesus here is saying that the good life in God is found through him. It's all these labors, all these things that you're doing, all these expectations that you're trying to meet, all these things you're laboring for, you cannot get them without walking through Jesus the door. And that is language of faith, of trust, is that my life, the life of, uh, what was the original question, uh, my best life, it's not found in, yeah, there's, there's two things that I said, but it's found in God alone, in Jesus alone. Because that's what you're created to do. You're created in God's image to live with Him in a relationship to Him. And when we sin against God, we turn our backs on Him and walk away. And what Jesus does is He walks in front of us and says, Come, I will show you the way back to God, with God. And He says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down His life for the sheep. The good life according to Jesus is a life in Him. A life that trusts in Him, that walks in Him. And not only that, but this language of that, he, that He uses here, the door and the, um, and the, uh, sh- and the, and the shepherd, is, is, is this is how you enter into the good life, which is a life in God. But also, too, shepherds keep the sheep together, right? That's what, a sh- that's what it means to shepherd something. So it's not just a, the, good, the way that you go in, but it's also how you're kept. You get that? That's, that's why he says them both at the same time. Is that the good life is found through me and in me. Um, that's the good life according to Jesus. And there are seven ways. So the book that we're studying, it does says some of this, but there's, 
So, so what does this mean, right? Um, how, does, how does this life in God lead to a good life or the best life? Um, seven things. One is a life in genuine community. You are not created to be an island. And what happens when you live a life that is self-centered is that people just become a means to the end of your own self-fulfillment. So people are objectified, right? Your friends exist not because you genuinely love them and care about them because they make you look better. And that's not friendship. That's actually a very lonely life. On the other side, it's the same thing, just different, right? Is that, is that people's expectation become a sense of your own worth and self-dignity. So people only exist in order for you to be able to meet a particular standard and make you feel better about yourself. That's not genuine relationship. But when your identity and when your source of fulfillment is found in the gospel, the reality that Jesus has come for you and has given you life, it frees you to live in genuine unity in community with one another because your well-being is not centered upon their opinion of you or your use of them, but it is centered upon what? God, which frees you to genuinely have friends, right? And what I love about the community of, that God invites us to, it's not just friends that look like you or that you're the same age, but they're, but they're people that are older, younger, different skin colors, even different languages and nationalities, as we read about in Revelation. Living in genuine community. The second thing is love as the highest ethic. Love. Jesus is the good shepherd who lays down his life for his sheep. That is not just something that he does for us, but he calls us to, to lay down our life for others. And that is the genuine definition of love. And that the good life is not a life that is self-seeking, but that you are now empowered because of God's love for you to then love other people well. The joy of selflessness, which is kind of almost saying the same thing, but that you actually, it's actually joyful to give yourself to other people. Like that's crazy in today's view. It is joyful, happy to empty yourself, to spend all your money on somebody else, to spend all your time on somebody else, to die to getting an A on your test and instead embracing getting a B so you can take care of a friend in need. It's dying to yourself. The selfless life is the joyful life. That's crazy talk. But, but, but Jesus empowers us, the good shepherd, to live in light of how he loved and how he lived with his selflessness. And then, you know, another one is a heart of gratitude. Like, y'all, we're grumbly people. We complain and we complain and we complain and we complain. I hear you guys complain all for the first 30 minutes while you're here about your teachers. I mean, that's all you guys do. Like, seriously. Why do we do that? Why? Because our hearts are fallen. And what God, what we do when we live in a relationship to the Good Shepherd, we see that every moment's intentional. And that God is trying to teach us something through everything. Even bad teachers. He's trying to invite you to the good life, to trust more fully in Him. A heart of gravity that gives thanks. I went to Disney. It was paid for by my, my mother-in-law as a Christmas gift. It was wonderful. Guess what I did half the time? I complained that the lines were too long, that it was too rainy, right? It's Florida, it should be warmer. Our hearts grumble. They have to be reoriented in God. And, and, and when they're reoriented in God, when we come into His fold, we see there's a lot of purpose, even in the hardship. The freedom of forgiveness, like, hey, people are going to wrong you. The longer you live, the more you see people are cruel, people will let you down, 
and people can, can make you bitter. And that bitter can kill you. That bitterness can absolutely kill you. When you experience the forgiveness of God in Jesus, it frees you to really forgive people who wrong you. That's a good life. That's a really good life. I know people who are so bitter because of what's done, and it, and it, and it, completely, it completely eats them. Jesus frees you to forgive. But not just that, but to be forgiven. Like when you wrong people, because you do it too, that there is, you can come to them and ask for their forgiveness and trust that God will empower them to forgive you. The ability to persevere, like life is long. It is like the majority, whatever the average person lives, I don't know, 72.5 years or something. That's a lot, that's a lot of years. A lot can happen in 72.5 years. How in the world are you going to get through it? Whatever it is. The good shepherd keeps you in the fold. That's how. You have the power to persevere. That's a good thing. And then lastly is a generous hand, which is similar to what we've been saying, is that your life is not defined by what you keep, but it's defined by what you can give. In every study, in every book, in every blog, in everything where a sociologist or whatever has studied what makes people happy, the common, most common trait that they see in somebody's life that has a joyful and content life is that they are completely generous. That their life is not defined by what they have and they're not anxious to keep, but they are freed to give. And because we have everything that we need in God and we trust Him, we are then freed up to give. So how can you live your best life now? Well, first thing is you have to discern the lie that you believe of what is the best life. What, what is the best life? Is it a life defined by individual autonomy is the ultimate goal? Is it a life defined by, I just meet the expectations of everybody? If I could just be seen as a good kid, my life is good. Or is it something else, which is this, embracing the good shepherd. That you are, are more fallen and more terrible than you could ever imagine. You are. But you are more loved and cherished and valued by God than you could ever dare to hope. And that's why Jesus came, to prove that to you. And to say, I'm worthy of your trust. And, 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 and come to me, come into my fold, and embody a life that is joyful, that is generous, that perseveres, that loves, that, that, that gets over itself and lives in unity with someone else. Jesus empowers us to not just have the good life, but to literally live the good life now. Uh, this author says this, and I'll close with this quote, Like planets orbiting the sun, we're meant to orbit around God. We're not meant to be the center of our own little universe. Atheist psychologist Jonathan Hayedit summarizes our psychological need like this. Just as plants need sun, water, and good soil to thrive, people need love, work, and connection to something larger. Following Jesus gives us all these things. Even atheists got this figured out. You know, like when you really think about the human condition, whether or not you believe in God or Christianity or Jesus, you're, you're led to this conclusion that this atheist psychologist, Jonathan H., concludes. Just as plants need water set in good soil to thrive, people need love, work, and connection to something larger. Our best life now is not a life that is fixated on the self, 
but it is a life that is centered on God. Christians aren't happier because they have easier lives. Rather, it is because they have a true and living hope that can hold their pain, their sadness, their anxieties, their fears, and their insecurities. That's the difference between the Christian and the non. It's not that your life is easier or that you have less pain or less suffering or less anxiety. It's that you have a hope that can hold it. And that is what it means to live the best life, is to hope now and forever in Jesus, the Good Shepherd. Let's pray. Father, thank you for, um, yeah, thank you for Jesus, the Good Shepherd, the door, the one whom we have the good life and the one who keeps us in the good life that is free. We don't have to pay to get through. We just have to step. And I pray that you would help us step more fully into your care. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.